Welcome to Conversations on Life, Work, and Love, hosted by coaches Bonnie Blackstone and Ramey Gibbs. Our focus is to give voices to Gen X women and help them achieve a well-lived life. Good afternoon, Ramey. How are you? Good, Miss Bonnie. How are things in Washington land? Uh, this morning, it's freaking freezing. It's actually snowing here. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, which is a real shock to the system. Um, we just got back from Hawaii um, a week ago, a little, little more than a week ago. So we're still adapting. It's um, amazing how quickly you get uh, acclimated to that sunshine in paradise. So it's a shock to the system. <laughs> Come back to the norm. But you know what's funny about that is you and I kind of did the opposite. So you went to Hawaii and I went to the mountains in Ridoso where it was mm-hmm. snowing cold. Now guess what the temperature is here today? Uh what? It's pushing 90. So Good Lord. <laughs> yeah. So opposite. Right. Such <laughs> is life. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But all good. As you and I were just saying, we took our vacations and a little hiatus from our recordings. So we're a little rusty. Um, yeah, we get to start fresh again and try to figure things out again, but it's good. Yeah. <laughs> everything's fine. It's just fine. Yeah. So here we go. As we say, everything's fine. Right? It's just Excellent. fine. Gen yeah. X, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really loving this topic that we're going to talk about today. And it's, um, we're titling it Living and Loving, um, Living with and Loving Addicts. You and I both have a lot of personal experience in that. And it's, we're not alone. And that's something we'll touch on too, listeners um, out there who think you might be alone. You are most certainly not. And that's what we want to talk about today. What our perspective has been in living with our loved ones and how we were able to overcome that pull towards their darkness and learn to take care of ourselves. And that's key. Absolutely. So that's great. So, um, and the biggest thing to think of as we go into this is recognize that addiction is a family problem. It's not just the addict's problem. It's everybody who they touch is problem as well. But as that goes, I think the biggest thing to remember is that we can't control anyone but ourselves. And so as we go into our stories, these are things that you and I both had to figure out mm-hmm. and probably still deal with on a regular basis, if not daily, remembering that we have to stay in our own lane. Right. Um, so as we go into this, Bonnie's going to lead with her story and then I will lead, then I will come in with my story. And in the end, we'll talk about different ways that you can retrain yourself basically out of this land of codependency. We'll talk about what that is and then how to. Um, take care of yourself because ultimately that's all you can do. And that's what you need to focus on. So Bonnie, why don't you kick it off? Let's, let's talk about your story. Yeah. Right. Well, my story um, involves my daughter who's 34 now and um, about goodness, six or seven years ago, she just hit a a space that seemed, um, you know, you talk about it being a family problem. It hit our family like she had been in a massive car wreck or something. Out of the blue, you get a call. Well, who knows for certain how long it had been building up, but she had 
we were suddenly aware that our daughter had an opioid addiction mm-hmm. and not just a little dabbling. She was in a bad, bad place. Um, her opioid addiction eventually morphed into heroin and morphed into her current demon is meth, which I'm sure it's my God, throw a rock and you're going to hit opioids or meth. Yeah. That story is so prevalent. Mm -hmm. I mean, I should have looked up the name of that movie. I don't remember it now or it was a series actually that talked about this um, and how the opioid addiction is just ridiculous and how the company that started it has been sued and they're, you know, they've lost lots of money and they just fought it. They knew this was happening. They knew these addictions were happening, but they didn't do anything about it. And they continued to push it and push it and push it. Oh, that Um, was a great show. I think it was on Hulu. If you're the one, if you're talking about the same one. Um, Yeah. It was about the, the yeah. We'll look it up and if we'll look it up because it was incredible if you follow that story. But generally, what happens is once you get addicted to that opioid, which typically happens because you've been hurt somehow, um, you you take them as a painkiller and then you become addicted. And all of these bad things happen. You start trying to get different doctors to write the prescription. Um, then that doesn't work anymore and you can't get it anymore. So you have to figure out how to continue getting that higher, that feeling. And it typically leads to uh, heroin. Um, and then when heroin becomes too expensive, your daughter, like she is now in meth. And that's, meth, which that's is, is um, life ruining. Honestly, yeah, absolutely. Honestly. And, you know, you probably, have heard that you know the t- about soccer moms you know the upper middle class becoming addicted well that's where she was talk about um white privileged upper middle class um successful athlete gorgeous she just started law school oddly enough um single mom but doing a really good job and so that's what I say when I say it, it happened like a car wreck. Yeah. You know, we're like, what the hell? What the hell? Um, so the first thing that happened is the initial response to it was anger. What are you doing? That's stupid. Stop it. Right. Stop. And we as a family had no idea what addiction was really even all about, other than you know, your basics, but we never had to, to deal with it. So ours started off with fear, of course, fear for her life, and then incredible anger. But with that fear, you know, you've got the sleepless nights, you're waiting for that phone call, that inevitable, she's dead, she's overdosed, she's been in an accident. Well, we got phone calls that she was in jail numerous, numerous times over the years. Um, so there were those phone calls. You're constantly on high alert. Were most of her jail times from dealing or was it from stealing or what? what was most of, well, actually, all of it was um, theft. It was, you know, fraud, petty theft. Um, trying to make money. To trying to make money basically. to support her habit, um, yeah. you know, and not to <laughs> cause any more problems for her. But I'm sure for every uh, charge filed against her that time served, I'm sure there were a handful of other 
things sure. that we don't even know about. And frankly, I don't ever want to know about them. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So in, um, along with anger and fear came guilt, you know, was this my fault? Was it my ex-husband's fault? Was it collectively? Did we not pay attention? What happened to her? Was it the divorce? Was there something else that happened? We we overlooked. It was just this. And this went on for years. You know, we were throwing money at her problem, paying her rent, paying for rehab, putting gas in her car. Mom guilt. Yes. Yes. This is it. Never doing it again until the next time you do it again. And that's enabling and that's codependent. And for me... I remember feeling very much alone. There was a stigma in it and I didn't want to talk about it. There was shame, shame and blame. Sure. And so I just took it upon myself to, um, I read every book under the sun. It felt like, and was on every forum, every Facebook group. And there was just so much information, all of it different as is true of any subject you pick. There's an opinion, there's a method, there's a thought. Right. For me, and I'll put them in the show notes, um, there were a a few books that really dove into the brain of the addict. And that helped me to see her differently. And in all of them, it was, you know, you can't fix the problem. You can support your loved one. Um, And there was one book that talked about how the addict and the loved one are two different people. You can love and support the non-addicted person, but this addict is not someone you want in your life. And that's where it becomes complicated. Because right, and it, the supporting and enabling, you have to draw the line there too. Right, yeah. Um, I love you, but I'm not going to do anything to help you support your bad habit. When I was finally able to let go is when um, she hit so far rock bottom, I had to rescue her infant. And I've been raising him ever since. Um, The addicted side of her said, fine, here you go. But the person I know and love that's in there was heartbroken. So it was very difficult. But in protecting him and, and raising him, I was able finally to let go of my ties with, not with her, but to her addiction, if that makes sense. It does actually. Yeah. So that's my story. The, the struggle is very real. It's very painful. It's very scary. And like you said, it is a family issue. Yeah, it really is. So I'm curious, cause we really haven't talked a whole lot about this, but have you had the opportunity to have a genuine conversation with her on on the addiction, how it started, why she continues. I know you've sent her to rehab a few times. Mm-hmm. Why, what's stopping her from getting better? You know, we have had some some pretty frank conversations and she's been fairly open. Um, with her, there is so much shame in the destruction of her her life. Self-inflicted. And she said to me one time, mom, I don't get high to have fun. I do it because I have to forget everything I've done. So now it's a a continuation. She destroyed and therefore she has to stay there so she doesn't think about what she did. 
Exactly, exactly. And then the chemistry involved with particularly with meth is um, rehab and therapy aren't going to do it. It takes intense cognitive behavioral therapy to rewire that brain. So she's at that point where she uh, right now she claims to be sober for the last two or three weeks. You still can't have a conversation with her. She's manic. She's she's out there. She's she's all over the place. Little cuckoo pants. Um, it takes years, even after sobriety, to retrain that brain. So, I guess to answer your question, yes, we have had some really good conversations, but not to the point where she has said, "This is the day I started, and this is why." Yeah. Um, I'm not sure she even knows. Maybe it was experimental. Maybe it was depression. She's also, um, she's been diagnosed at one time with bipolar. Who who knows which came first? That's a whole different subject as well. But, you know, she continues to be open as much as she can um, within her own realm. Sure. And neither of us are scientists, but we can talk slightly from our own experiences where the science behind addiction And I think it's important based on what you just said, what happens to the brain and where addiction sets, sits, sits, Mm -hmm. is actually in the amygdala, which is the um, dinosaur brain, the lizard brain, whatever you want to call it. So it's the most primitive part of our brain. Mm -hmm. And once it gets embedded into your most primitive part of your brain, it becomes an auto response. It's the same response as I'm hungry. I want sex. I need, you know, it's it's there. So it becomes, it's attached to that part of your brain and it becomes a a need versus a want. And your frontal lobe is no longer in control when it comes to that. So addiction is hard to overcome. It's scary. um, And it takes a lot of want and work on behalf of the person that is addicted. And I think, and I don't, I, again, I don't know if it's most cases, but in many, many cases, it it never works because they cannot, they don't commit enough to the process. Exactly, exactly. And I'll just um, throw this in here, and I'm sure many of you have already heard this analogy before, and then, then let's talk about your story. Yeah. I think it was Johan Hari who wrote the book, Chasing the Scream, which is on my top list. You got to read it. If you're loving anyone with an addiction, read that book. But he talks about the um, lab experiment with rats, how there were, you know, one, one water bottle had sugar in it, you know, food, and one had cocaine. And they would go to the cocaine, go to the cocaine, go to the cocaine, and starve to death, because they were choosing that over the nutrition, the nourishment. Sure. Um, So that in an animal whose instinct is survival tells you a lot, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we humans in our little amygdala, we're pretty much like animals too. It should be survival. But now your brain is wired to depend on that substance as nourishment. Yeah. It's it's terrifying when you think about it, honestly, but knowing that 
helps make things make sense so much more. Um, and so we can start kind of digging into my story. And I, I just, as we were talking, that I just want to say this because it's the first thing that came to my mind with the conversation on the science. So we talked before that um, both my parents were alcoholics. Right. They married an alcoholic. Well, what initially came to mind here is that, so my dad was sober for, I don't know, 20 years or something like that. And in his final days, he was a practicing alcoholic again. And so once that is in your brain, it doesn't go away. Right. right. You can retrain your brain to no longer desire whatever your addiction is. But the second you give it back to it, you're right back to that same point. And so I think that's what happens so often with addicts is that they let me test the waters. Yeah. So often from alcoholics, my husband said, has said this too. Let me test the waters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you're right back in it once you test the waters. <laughs> oh, absolutely. There isn't any dabbling. Um, no. You know, those of us who aren't wired for addiction. And that's another key element. Yeah. Being wired. Not everyone is wired to be an And I would have addict. to say, if I'm being honest, I, you know, I tell you, I tried to do sober January and it was hard. Yeah. I go on a diet and it's hard to stick to. Sure. Um, for me, I believe it's more habits when I replaced my glass of wine to unwind with peppermint tea. I'm fine. Um, I go exercise instead of eating cookies. I'm fine. Yeah, My brain's able to switch gears. Sure. But I say that because in part I, I've, can't even imagine how hard it is living with full-on addiction to retrain your brain. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and you know, we're talking about this just, make sure I use the right word. It's not to sympathize, it's to empathize. Right. right? So we don't feel pity for the addicts, but we do understand. Right. And it doesn't make it okay, but we understand what's happening. So, yeah. and that's, and I just, you know, that's important to understand why it's happening because then you can work through the rest for yourself. So exactly. anyway, now to dig more into my story. So like we said, we talked about both my parents were alcoholics. My parents divorced when I was fairly young and my mom raised me. And I think I knew, I understood my dad's story. Um, I understood that he his job actually recognized that he was an alcoholic and they paid for him to go to, to rehab. Or actually, I think he went to detox. I was pretty young. Um, and then really followed AA. And like I said, he was sober for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, he ended up with cancer. Um, that it was a esophageal. And there's a good chance that was caused from the overconsumption of alcohol. He also had diabetes from being an alcoholic. And then he was also a smoker. So was it caused from drinking or was it caused from smoking? I don't know. Um, but they told him that he probably wouldn't survive. Well, he did from that batch of cancer. But from having that, he decided that he should be able to sample whatever he wanted. And it started with uh, Godiva. 
liqueur and then turned into full blown being an alcoholic again. Um, it's, just, it's sad. It's tragic. He lied. Uh, you know, he mm-hmm. unfortunately, I can't say that he was a good person. I wish I could. I want to say that. I want to feel that. Right. Um, but he and and maybe it was because of his addiction. And even when he was sober during those 20 years or whatever it was, he was so selfish, always so selfish and so self-righteous. His way was the way. There was no other way. Um, I don't know. Was he a narcissist? Eh, I don't know. You know, we've talked about that. So he was not a good dad. Um, later in life, we learned to be friends ish. Um, I cared about him and that's probably all I can say about that. It just, um, it, it was tough. That was a tough relationship. Yeah. But like I said, my parents divorced and the first memory I have of my dad was beating on a table. I was probably four, um, screaming and yelling. We walked out the door, my mom and I did at that point. So um anyway my mom so I didn't recognize that she had a problem until I was about 12 or I didn't understand what the problem was until I was about 12 I should say actually I think it was 14 when I understood what the problem was let me backtrack that when I was 10 I recognized that she was ridiculous I, I have a very clear memory of her she was dating this guy that was married and he I don't even know why this happened, but for whatever reason, I went off on him about, does your wife know where you are? Do your kids know where you are? Um, What are you doing to your family? Why are you here? Mm -hmm. And he left because he was at our house at that moment. And my mom lays down on the floor and literally has a temper tantrum like a two-year-old on her back, screaming, yelling, what did you do? You chased him off, blah, blah, blah. Okay. I knew there was a problem then, but I didn't understand what the problem yeah, was. Yeah, right. Um, and then probably when I was at 14, I think I was 14, I then understood what was happening. I would find her empty bottles of vodka. She was crying day in and day out. She worked too. Um, and I was constantly being that what's wrong now, what happened now person in her life. And so at that point, I tried to get her into AA. Um, I even went with her to the first meeting, but she never went back. And so, you know, growing up with that and now as an, excuse me, as an adult, I can look back and see the weird things that it's done to me, you know, living with two alcoholic parents, primarily my mom, seeing my dad's bad behavior. Um, it's done a lot to me physically. And that's what really caused my autoimmune disorders. Right. So also in that realm, it's, and it was very clear to me when it was time to get married that I took psychology in college and I understood that because I was a child of alcoholics, there was a good chance that I would marry an alcoholic because what we grow up with is what we know. And that's the behaviors that we expect. And so I was very careful when I got married the first time um, and now looking back on it, he wasn't an alcoholic, but it was still that same 
environment. He was still someone that um, expected a lot from me. And as I look back on it now, and we'll talk about some of these things that as a codependent, you, you have to free yourself from, like, I wasn't allowed to have my own feelings. Um, he always made me feel like I was this terrible person. Um, that happened later in our marriage, though. In the, in the beginning, it wasn't really that bad, but he had his own issues. And so it's interesting to look back at that now, now that I know stuff. Right. And be like, ugh. I was already, even though he was an alcoholic, he had these weird obsessive tendencies. Um, so, and then my second marriage, yay me, I married an alcoholic. <laughs> um, <laughs> Congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> I had to be a statistic. Yay. Awesome. Um, and so from this relationship, I'm I've had to have a come to Jesus with myself and really understand what's going on and what I'm accepting and why I'm accepting it. And I'm learning about boundaries and I'm learning about more than anything that this is my life and it's my story and I get to choose Yeah, what's going to happen to me and the rest of my life. And I get to make the choice. Do I want to stay in this relationship or do I not? And I have chosen to stay in it um, because he is trying to do his work, not the way I think he should. But again, that's a codependent thing, right? It's right. his journey, not mine. Exactly. All I can do is stay in my lane mm -hmm. and make the right choices for me. Yeah. So, yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah. <laughs> so let's let's talk about, you know, what do you mean? What do we mean when we say let's make the right choices for ourselves? Um, or should we backtrack a little and talk about, let's define what codependency is? It's a, it's a difficult subject and it's, let's, can we nutshell it? Because that could be the subject of a whole nother podcast, but. Yeah, I think we can. And, it, you know, I really had a hard time understanding what the heck it was, but I think I get it now. But it's, again, it's kind of hard to, to truly define. But I'm going to read this because this is um, Melody Beatty's description, and she wrote the book Codependent No More. Mm -hmm. So this really kind of nutshelled it for us. It's a codependent person is someone who has let another person's behavior affect them and who is obsessed with controlling that person's behavior. I can relate to that. Can you? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like there's, you know, the element of um, anger and fear, like I brought up with my daughter. Um, there's the issues of control. I mean, here's a person I, you know, I can't speak uh, to your husband, but I'm I'm guessing, you know, many of us who've dealt with addicts, they're they're not just wrecking their own lives. Oh no. They're wrecking yours. Yeah, seriously wrecking balls. Soul, all of it. Your bank account. I mean, they're effing up some stuff left and right. So yeah. there's a control issue there too. It's like stop well, it. What the hell? Yeah, and the lies. Holy crap. The the lies. Lies. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's human nature to want something different. And maybe that's where the complication in, uh, am I codependent or is this just normal? Do I just want to change things? What's wrong with that? <laughs> you know? Well, and that's it. And I, I, it's hard because, but when you finally 
decide that the way you're looking at things is probably not right because yeah. we can't control other people. Right. We can only control ourselves. Exactly. And, and letting go of that. Mm-hmm. That's Which hard. Is, yeah. It sounds like you've, like you said, you had your come to Jesus moments. I had them as well when I took in Easton. You know, like, yeah. what am I doing? I can't do this anymore. Um, and not only did I have a child to think of, but myself. And you have yourself. Um, you talked about in another episode, a uh, prior episode, how you realized that this was contributing to your um, illness that yeah. you needed to take control of your own health or you were going to end up the one dead. Yeah, no, and, um, absolutely. I think that's where when you can sit down um, and maybe have uh, a therapist or a coach or a mentor or a good friend tell you, hey, what are you doing? How does that really feel? What do you really want? Is yeah. the, How's that working for you? As Dr. Phil would say, how's that working yeah. for you? Yeah. Um, and that's where you stop and go, huh, Ooh, those sleepless nights, not working. Screaming and yelling, not working. Busting my ass at work to pay for shit that's not my problem, not working. Yeah. <laughs> and, All of the things that aren't working, you know, yeah. uh, you're, what happens is you end up, you're not instead, you're living your life. You're living the life as someone who's attached to someone with an addiction, right? And so you're living, you're really living their life and not your life because your whole life is consumed with trying to control that addiction and that person. And guess what? Yeah, doesn't work. Because you know what they do? They take that support you throw at them and they just go on their merry way and do what they want to do anyway. Yeah. Thanks for the help. I'm going to go off and do my thing. Or they, a lot of times they don't even thank you for the help because they don't want it. No, they don't. They don't want the help. I can think about how many times I've, you know, the old adage of you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And I, you know, let me do the work for you. Well, guess what? You can't do the work for them. Yeah. And I've tried. Let me give you all of the tools. I'm a coach. Here are all of the tools. Yeah. Yeah. Just do the work. Yeah. And then you're like, oh my God, do the work. Do the work. (laughs) Yeah. But no, they they become almost childlike in that sense where, well, if you're going to do it all, I'm just going to let you. I don't appreciate it, but whatever, man. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So what do you do? How do you set yourself free from this attachment? How do you detach from Well, this? and that's where you have to start. Yeah. Right? is detaching. Mm-hmm. That's the first step. So what does that mean? Well, yeah. it means you have to release yourself from this unhealthy entanglement in love. You know, we have to recognize that each of us are responsible for ourselves and you have to let go of that responsibility for the other person. Mm-hmm. And just like a, what my favorite term, stay in your lane, stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Yep. Um, and it's hard. It's not easy to detach because you love the person and you, you want to keep them on track. And, you know, sometimes it's hard because it affects your life, too. An example might be before my husband went to rehab, I was getting him up every morning. I would set my alarm to make sure that he got up. Right. 
Uh, and, and why was I doing that? Well, because we're dependent on his paycheck, right? Yeah. So there was that. And there were probably lots of other things, but the first one that comes to mind. Yeah. So, so when I learned, oh, and I would make his lunch and I would make sure he had what he needed before he went to work. And, you know, I was taking care of that piece of him. Everything uh, but brushing his teeth for him. Yes. Yeah. Go to work. Right. Um, since he's come out of rehab, you know, he still um, tested the waters and he's still trying to find his way. He's doing much better. Uh, is he? Did he follow the path that I want him to follow? Of course not. Um, did I really struggle with trying to find alcohol hidden in the house? Of course I did. Um, that's something I've really had to learn to not do. Don't go look because all it does is stresses me out. Right. And it, uh, my heart rate increases and I go back to feeling that panic mode, um, which is no good for me. And so I've really had to learn to detach from his addiction. I love the man, but I want nothing to do with the addiction and the effects that the addiction have on him. Um, so what's happened with the detachment is now you have to get yourself up. You have to make sure you have food to take. You have to take care of yourself. Everything that is your responsibility is your responsibility is not mine. I will take care of myself. And I had to learn how to do that too. I had to learn right. how to take care of myself no. because I was sorry about him all the time. But I wasn't taking care of myself. Right. It's so easy to get enmeshed in their madness. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that as you detach, there's certainly some relief in that, but it doesn't mean that you are suddenly sleeping like a baby or oh, no. life is good. So that is a uh, false hope. There's always going to be that nugget because you love this person. Yeah. You love them and you want them to live a happy life. So that being said, you know, self-care awareness of what are you doing for yourself? Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So self-care becomes huge. Um, and, you know, we've talked about self-care a bunch in the past, but some of the, the things we can do, and, and maybe it's a little bit different here because like you, the reading becomes important. You really need to understand what's going on, not only with your loved one, but with yourself. And so, you know, codependency no more was a huge reading for me. Um, and I also asked some other women who are uh, living with alcoholics or perhaps remove themselves from that situation, what was important to them. And a lot of them recommended the book, Women That Love Too Much. I'll put that in the show notes. Um, I think it was also important to, and you and I both read what happened to you. And that I think really in, uh, makes you understand trauma. And a lot of times it is trauma that makes a person become an addict. You know what that trauma is. We may or may not know, but a lot of times that's where it gets, where it starts. So self-care through reading um, getting a therapist, you need your own therapist too, to get through this. Cause you need someone to talk to about it and they'll help you process what's happened to you because you have been traumatized in this process. Um, it and it's going to, yeah, I mean, you absolutely are. I would say getting a coach too is also important because the therapist will, will work on the trauma 
And then the coach will help you move forward into your taking care of yourself and building the life for you. So if you're actually married to an addict, you have probably not focused on yourself at all. You probably have not focused on your career. You have not built the life you want. You have not taken care of yourself. And so you need someone to help you move forward instead of just dealing with the past. So the combination of the two work really well when it comes to dealing with an addict. Also, Al-Anon is a a great place to go. Um, It's different for everybody. It's not, well, I I don't know if it's Al-Anon that can be the challenge itself or if it's the groups, but some of the groups are not as good as others. And so the concept of Al-Anon is great and that it's a community of like-minded people that are going through the same experiences that you're going through. So it gives you people to talk to um, and it's focused on moving forward. And so it has its good points. Now where it becomes a challenge is it is um, God-based. And so sometimes that makes it difficult to connect to it. Right. If you're someone who's not um, a faith-based by nature person, it could be a little bit polarizing. But the point is to find a community and just know you're not alone. There are so many people struggling alone. If you can't find a group, create one. Yeah. 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 And then um, I've also, a lot of people have found... um, serenity and embracing, embracing, I'll say that right, embracing a higher power. And and that goes back to, again, you get to self-identify what your higher power is. You don't have to say God, you don't have to say Jesus. It can be the universe. It can be whatever you want it to be, but it's being connected to something bigger than yourself. And, and in that you surrender to that and you seek guidance, guidance and support from others that are connected to that um meditation also is another good one yeah it's just um taking that time to connect with yourself Uh, first identify what you need find a community of like-minded people so you don't feel like this outsider trying to figure it all out and then find a route that's going to put you in touch with yourself like meditating yoga a good fitness routine And that's where coaching can come in really well because we have the tools to help you find what's right for you, you know? So at the end of the day, it is really about taking care of yourself because as you like to say, you can't pour from an empty cup, right? (laughs) So yeah, that's a Ramey quote. (laughs) And, but it's so true. You're so depleted when you're going around trying to put out all these little fires and suddenly you implode. You're yeah. a dumpster fire at the end of that day. Well, and you're empty. And if you don't fill yourself up, then you can't help anyone yeah. else, including yourself. So, yeah. yeah. So, so there's another, I think there's another big piece of this that we need to touch on, and that's setting boundaries. Oh, definitely. And um, this is tricky because I have fallen into a trap before with this and not truly understanding how boundaries work. And so, Tell me, tell me about how you've been able to set boundaries with your daughter. And then I want to kind of talk about some challenges that I have had with setting boundaries. Well, for me, I will start by saying it's still a struggle. 
the minute I get a phone call out of the blue and I can tell she's sober, I've missed her so much, you know, that I feel like um, I've taken the bait. Yeah. Um, So I have to start all over with every positive conversation. I'm a little bit of an advantage that she will vanish for long periods of time and I don't have to worry about her anymore. I do, but she's not in my face. You know, we like to say, you know, no news is is no is good news in that whew, some space and some peace for a little while um so i would say it's still a very much a work in progress i have to remind myself every time um don't fall for the bullshit lies don't um i'm allowed to love her i will listen to her talk i don't send money i don't invite her to stay with me i love her up as much as I can. I don't question because the old me would question. Oh, really? Where are you working? Hmm. What's the address? Let me Google it. Let me call. Let me see if you're actually working there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now I just say, that's great. Congratulations. Um, It's a, it's a conversation by conversation effort to remind myself, don't take the bait. Yeah. 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 And I know for me, so I don't even remember. I heard it on some podcast and it was just like such a huge aha moment. So when my husband came out of rehab, one of the things they teach you to do is to set boundaries. So I didn't, what I didn't understand was the setting of the boundary was for myself. Yeah. And I think that's where we get stuck. And a lot of people get stuck because you set, you set a boundary, but it's really for the other, you're setting up for the other person. Yeah. Like if you do this, then you're crossing the boundary. Well, mm-hmm. that's not the boundary you need to set. You need to set the boundary for yourself. Mm-hmm. And so like my example was if you have another pancreatic attack, which is what, you know, put him into rehab, um, then I'm going to have to leave because I can't sit here and watch you kill yourself. Right. Okay. But, I wasn't really setting that boundary for me. I was setting it for him. Right. right? It was was like a timeout threat that you would give to a child. If you continue that, I'm taking away this. Yeah. And so what happened? Well, when, when the boundary was crossed, I wasn't ready to comply. And so it was worthless. Right. Worthless boundary. And so I think learning that, that it's not the boundary has to be set for what you will accept what behaviors you will accept from other people and what boundaries you will set for yourself. Yeah. You know, it's like, what will you accept from yourself and what will you accept from other people? That becomes the boundary. You have to set it, but you're setting it for yourself, not for someone else. Exactly. Does that make sense? I don't know. (laughs) Well, the thing is, this is a very complicated subject and there are so many different sorts of addicts and so many people afflicted so many caregivers, so, so many loved ones that we could probably go on and on and on and on and on. But for the sake of time, we're going to wrap this up. Um, There were three books that I read and that really helped me understand how an addict's brain worked. Um, One was Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari. The other was in the Realm of Hungry Ghosts by Gabor Mate, and the other was The Unbroken Brain by Maya, and I'm going to say this, uh, Zalovitz. It probably totally butchered that, but it really helped to humanize 
the experience that they're going through. Yeah. They're not just, uh, you know, pieces of, you know, what, because they choose to use a needle or over drink or whatever. They're human beings going through some sort of a experience. Um, and that being said, when we talk about boundaries, your loved ones need boundaries too. Sure. They have a right to their privacy. They have a right to their privacy. Um, and they have a right to not listening to you meddle in their business, no matter how crazy that business happens to be. Right. Have honest conversations, set those yes. boundaries, ask them, what do you want from me? What do you need? And let it go. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of times I think as we go to heal ourselves, the other person will start working on themselves too, as they see Absolutely. Us Absolutely. And often that does happen. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. it's, it's not going to be the way you think it should be. It's not going to be the way that you hope it will be. But as they learn to be responsible for themselves, mm-hmm. the work will happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we should probably wrap this up. Um, Listeners, just remember there is help. You're not alone. Um, Reach out to, you know, sometimes friends and family are not that supportive because they have their own opinions. They're dealing with their own experience with this probably same person. And um, so go, go outward, find someone who's not attached to that situation. Yeah, get the therapist, get the coach. You know, you've heard Bonnie and, and my story and you know where we are. So if you need help, reach out to us. And then most importantly, take care of yourself. Amen you, to that. It's your story and your life. And you get to take care of you. Yeah, don't don't cut that life short by worrying about somebody else. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, listeners. Um, as usual, we'll put our thoughts on these books any other things that come to mind in the show notes and reach out to either of us or both of us if you'd like to talk more about the subject. All right. Until next week. Until next time. Join us every Thursday for more conversations on life, work, and love. And when you're ready to find your own voice and your own path towards a well-lived life, we'd love to be your coaches. Reach out to us through our websites. You'll find me, Ramey, at renovatedrealities.com. And you'll find me, Bonnie, at bonnieblackstone.com. Thanks for hanging out with us. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to review, rate, and follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.